Abba Father. Lord, as always, I come to you uh, with absolutely no skill sets. No, uh, there's no reason in my heart on why you should bless right now. I don't earn anything. Uh, we don't. This is all about your grace. It is all about the way you show kindness. It's all about the fact that you love and your mercy. And uh, Abba Father, would you please by your spirit, just override our own hearts, our own doubts, our own pain, and and ways that we might distort reality and how we see it. And would you literally cut through stuff and get to the heart of what it means to love you with all that is in us and to be a follower of your son, Jesus Christ. Please, but I cannot do this on my own, and I ask you, dear spirit, Do what only you do, please, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we have have worked through this several times, that following Jesus literally means, hey, Frank, uh, repeating the words of Jesus and replicating the ministry actions of Jesus and doing it with his heart motive, all right? Uh, I'm sure you have, on occasions, forced yourself to obey on the outside, but on the inside, you are a wreck. <laughs> I mean, you are so mad and so full of judgment and bitterness and anger, but on the outside, you're just faking it till you make it. And a true disciple obeys with the mouth, obeys with hands and feet, how we live, but to the best of their ability, obeys from the heart. And that requires a lot of humility, a lot of brokenness to be there, right? Christ esteem, seeing and valuing myself the same way Jesus saw and valued himself. It is a, I'm telling you, it is life-changing to do that, to make the jump, to literally begin to value myself the way Jesus valued himself because it moves me away from being addicted to public opinion. By the way, forgive me, uh, you would be, well, actually, you probably wouldn't be shocked. You know, it didn't take too many brain cells to figure this out. You'd be surprised how many pastors suffer from an acute addiction called congregation esteem. I mean, they are addicted to their congregations. And if the numbers are up, we got a good pastor. And if the numbers are down, ooh, we got a bad pastor. And pastor's worth is literally measured by nickels and noses in the average church. And that is a very, very unhealthy dynamic and reflects, quite frankly, quite a bit of spiritual immaturity on that staff member when that happens. And I'm telling you, it's going to be all over Little Rock, Arkansas, this morning. It's going to be all over the place. And we're going to be worried about measuring our worth by nickels and noses, and that is dangerous, dangerous business. So, <clears throat> all right. Let's look at uh, a key idea. This morning, we're going to be focusing on Jesus as a follower. Okay? Jesus, the follower of God. How do we know he did it? What does it look like? Is there biblical evidence that he was a follower of God? Let's start at step one, which is going to be Luke 2, 41 to 52. Jesus turns 12. Okay, he's moving toward the the key life event uh, that Jewish boys would go through, bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah, which means in Hebrew, to be a son of the law, is what that means. A girl would go through bat mitzvah. She'll be a daughter of the law. And, and that means that ethically, from this point forward, 
the boy is now responsible for the moral obligations, the ethical obligations of the law. He needs to act like a man and keep the law. This is where it begins. And so they go to Jerusalem for this feast of Passover, and they're going through these kinds of customs and things. And uh, while they were turning, Christ stays back at the temple. You remember the story. Now watch this. His parents missed him for five days. They go a day's journey. He's gone. Can you imagine uh, you know, the Withrow family and their two little boys? Can you imagine five days without your boys? And you're not sure. A day's journey. Can't find him. Got to go a day's journey back. Can't find him. Then three days in the, before they finally catch up with the guy... In Jerusalem, five days, they're separated. They find him, verse 46, then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, he's 12 years of age, talking to the gray beards, okay? And uh, when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Andrew, just like a mom to say something like that. Why? How could you do that? For nine months I carried you. Can you hear it? Why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? All right, now... That is called a, David, a Semitism. That is a peculiar Hebrew-esque way of saying something. In Hebrew, it means, did you not know that I had to be about the business of my father? Is what it really means. I have business between me and my father. Or you could word it this way. I had to be about the business of my father's house. Is what he meant, okay? Now, lock it down. Jesus made that decision at the age of 12. Wow. Can you imagine how sad it would be if we never made that decision? If we, as those of us here who are adults, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of age, and you still have not made the decision to be about the business of the house of God, the kingdom of God, that that would be pretty sad. Christ made that decision at age 12, and this is when he formally becomes a follower of God. Now, watch what happens here. This is from Luke's gospel. It is beautiful. Luke 3 records the baptism of Jesus. And it says, coming out of the water, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And listen to these words, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. What is fascinating, in my client caseload, almost to the person, every one of them does not know what it's like to hear those words from their mom and dad. They don't know. They have no concept of what, is, what it's like to have a parent that is fully pleased with them and how hard that is on them as a child. So you have in Luke 3, 22, Jesus is now the recipient or now holds, contains. We can use lots of lingo to say this, but he gets the spirit, descends on him. He now receives the spirit and it's done in a way that's visible. It comes in the form of a, a dove. Right after that, in 4, 1, 
Jesus now, full of the spirit that he just received, goes from the Jordan into the wilderness. He's led by the spirit. He's full of the spirit. He's led by the spirit. And he goes into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, his loyalty to the business of his father's house is tested. Over food, over things of this world, and over whether or not he's going to try to be his own God. When you try to be your own God, you like to play with power, don't you? You like to play with power. You want, there's a real ego, ego, egotistical need for power and control. And so Satan says, hey, jump off the pinnacle of the temple. It's written, you know, he won't let your foot, foot strike a stone. And Jesus says, you can't put God to the test. Three deep needs of the human soul. It's partly because we're made in God's image. Number one, the need for bodily provision. We need food. Jesus retorts, Michael, you live by God's word, not by, not by bread, right? And then the need to, to have things, you know, a place to lay your head, clothes, a house, those kinds of things. And Randa Satan offers him everything. He gets the whole world and all the kingdom of the world. And says, all you got to do is worship me in exchange. And he said, no. You worship God. You don't worship things. Okay? So we're getting at greed over food. We're getting at greed over material possessions and glory. And then we're getting at the greed that we want to be our own gods. That we can jump off of pinnacles and we can break the laws of physics. And magically we get protected. Boy, we're playing with lots of power there, aren't we? And Christ says, you don't put God to, te- to the test. And he passes the test in the wilderness, demonstrating that he is, in fact, loyal to his father. After he passes the test, he returns to Galilee, now in the power of the Spirit. He then enters a synagogue, an Isaiah scroll is handed to him. He reads the scriptures, and he says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you you see the summary of this? He receives the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit and lives it out, is led by the Spirit. He returns in the power of the Spirit. Then he can publicly announce that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. This is evidence that Jesus is a follower of God. Look at this. More evidence that he's a follower of God. John 5. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Does that sound familiar? 828. I speak the things as the Father taught me. Dropping down into John 12. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And he can confess in John 14, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Jesus is a follower of God. He is literally being an example of what it means to be a disciple. In fact, he is the ideal disciple. He's literally modeling it for us. Uh, Those of you who've done uh, some serious academic study when, if you're going to do study of history and literature, one of the things you've got to do is study genre, right? Literary genre. Why is that important? 
Uh, for example, let's say you're going to do some medical studies. Do you think you should pick up off the rack at Kroger uh, the National Star or one of the pulp magazines like that or People magazine to really get some good medical information? Would you do that? Why? Why, why would you not do that? Because it's a genre. It's meaningless. It's, it's pulp gossip. It's a meaningless publication, and you wouldn't derive serious academic research to that, that genre, right? Do you think you should pick up the New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet Magazine or something like that? Would that be, kind of make more sense? Or the Oxford Medical Journal? Should you do? Of course you would, because the genre is designed to give accurate scientific medical information per the particular diagnosis you have. Only makes sense, right? Okay. Well, when you do a genre study and you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what genre is it? Pop quiz. What genre is it? Anybody? It's a, exactly. It literally, if you, if you compare Greco-Roman biographies and you line them up, you do your homework, and you read the four Gospels and you compare them, you go like, wow, they're kind of the same thing. They're written in the same style, the same kind of format. You go like, the Gospels are a type of Greco-Roman biography. Okay, if you get that one settled, then guess what the next question is? Then what's the, so what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. The reason why we even have Greco-Roman biography is because the Greeks and the Romans believed that in order for the state to survive, in order for the state to maintain honor and be a dominant political force, you had to have ideal citizens. And if you have an ideal citizen, you've got to push them out to the front so that everybody else can see the ideal citizen and say, I've got to be just like that guy or that girl, usually almost always a guy. Because if he represents the ideal citizen of the state, the virtues, the convictions, the practices, the genius, those peculiar ways of saying something that can put down one's enemies and, and competitors, then you want to be just like that. And if you don't, then you're a fool. There's honor, shame, pressure. If you're honorable, you follow the ideal citizen. If you're shameful, you do not follow the ideal citizen. So look at the Gospels. You can just parade this. You've got Jesus, and you have all these people being paraded in front of him, and the exchange between the two. And what do some of the people do? Do some people become his followers? Yes. And look who doesn't follow him, right? So in the end, who are the fools? Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers, scribes, the prideful, the self-sufficient, who become his followers, the broken, the diseased, the needy, the marginalized, those who are so beat up by life and their own sins that they feel like they're not worthy. Who is he having dinner with? Who is he having coffee with, right? Do you see, this is Greco-Roman biography, played out in the form of the Gospels, what we see. Now, because of that, when you know that Jesus Christ is the ideal citizen of the ideal state, the kingdom of God, you realize you are instantly obligated to be just like him. There's no way around it, none. So, what if you chose to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What if you made that, that life-changing decision? What would it look like? Well, this is what Luke 9 says. Whoever 
is ashamed of me and my words. The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. Okay? You got to take up the cross daily. You got to follow him. If you want to save your life, you're going to end up losing it. In other words, if you don't want to follow me, fine, you're going to lose your life. If you want to follow me, you've got to lose it, and in doing that, you find it. Because what do you profit if you, if you gain the whole world? Oh, wait, wasn't that a test question on the temptation in the wilderness? Wasn't that a test question, Christina, remember? Say, hey, look, look around. You get everything. You get the whole world. You get to profit the whole world, but you just got to worship me. That's the one, the one little fine print. You get it all but you've got to worship me. That's the same issue here. What does a man profit if he gains the whole world? You get it all. And then you lose and forfeit yourself in the process. Do you see? Jesus is a follower of God. He gave us the example of what it looks like to follow God. When you read the Gospels and you choose to follow him, you are instantly obligated to do what he would do. And he warns that there's a cost. That if you're ashamed of my words, if you can't repeat my words, if you don't embrace my convictions, we got a problem. If you don't accept my words, I won't accept yours when it's going to really matter at the judgment. Look at this, Luke 9. The foxes have holes, birds have a place to lay their head, and others says, well, follow me. Follow, follow me. And Jesus says, well, you know, if, if you've got to go home to have a funeral, sorry. You let the bed bury the dead. You follow me. All these excuses being presented to Christ. But look what he says. He says, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Being a follower of Jesus has a tremendous price, tremendous cost. Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father. Look at, look at the, these are all primary family relationships. Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. Yes, even his own life. If you don't hate those people, even self-hate, you cannot be my disciple. That's about as sharp as the razor gets, huh? Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be the disciple, be my disciple. Verse 33, so then if none of you can be my disciple who does not give up his own possessions. Here's a summary. Loving family and self, which is a failure to renounce, more than loving and obeying Jesus negates being a disciple. Refusal to carry one's own cross negates being a disciple. Refusal to give up all possessions negates being a disciple. That's expensive. Very, very expensive. So to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to repeat his words to replicate his ministry actions, Michelle, and to do so with his heart motives to the best of your ability. In other words, we're gonna talk like and act like Jesus Christ. Now remember, and we've hit this so hard, check this out. Um, look at this. To follow Jesus is to repeat his words, replicate his actions. Look at, look at John 12. I speak just as the Father has told me to speak. Is Jesus doing it? Yes. 
Yes, he's doing it. Look what he says in John 5. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son does. So Jesus is proving that he's the ideal disciple. He himself says what Dad says and does what Dad does and to the best of his, his ability with pure heart motives. And if you follow Jesus, that's exactly what you do. Exactly. Make sense? All right. Jesus saw and valued himself exclusively through the eyes of God his Father. He did not develop an emotional, parasitic attachment to the 12 disciples. He didn't develop a codependent, parasitic attachment to Pharisees or try to make them the test case of whether or not he really was a good teacher or any of those kinds of things. He didn't do that at all. He literally was concerned about the approval of God. All right. So, a couple of concluding questions here I want to to point out. You know, to verbally claim to be a follower of Jesus and yet behave as a non-follower of him is serious business. Okay? The gate is small. The way is narrow. And few find it, Michael. Few. Not a lot. It's not a super highway to heaven. It's a very narrow gate. Right? Jesus Christ made a life-changing decision at the age of 12 to commit himself to be about the business of his father's house. Have you made that decision? Are you truly about the business of your father's house? Or do you find yourself so busy trying to manage your own little kingdom on earth that you have no time for the kingdom of God? You're so busy. Or you have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) And you have no idea what it means to experience the new birth. I would just beg you, would you please understand or consider that Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice, like a lamb, an, an unblemished lamb, is sacrificed for us so that we could receive forgiveness. We are literally made right with God through Jesus Christ. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, uh, if you're like me, and I lay myself on the altar and I go, is Chris Perry really repeating his words? Can, like all the time? <laughs> and repeating his actions all the time with his heart motives? Ooh. Sometimes I can feel pretty beat up. Let me read Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right. You are the gifted body of Christ. Can you see, even from this morning, that if you allow yourself to be consumed with self-glory or deriving glory from a peer at the expense of, of God's glory, how you miss the kingdom? How you fail to judge and discern things accurately? What can you say this morning as though God's Spirit is speaking through you about the wisdom of making that life-changing decision to be about the business of your Father? About valuing yourself just as He valued Himself? About what it means to put your hand to the plow and not look back? Counsel yourself. You're the body of Christ. How do we do it as a church? How do you do it in your family? How do you do it as an individual faithfully walking with Jesus Christ? You're the body of Christ. Care for yourselves. Why is this so important? It's more than just seeing yourself this way. I've noticed lately when you begin to see others as Jesus did, you, you don't take things as personally when you feel like people are really demanding of you or when they respond in a certain way. They're responding out of their pain. They're responding out of, you know, a desire for control because they don't feel control or whatever's going on. You begin to have compassion even for people who you feel are attacking you. Hmm. And um, Did you hear what she just said? <laughs> we begin to have compassion on the people that are attacking us. Michelle, that is brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Keep going. I'm sorry. That was too hard uh, to come. Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing that. Michelle, someone else. Why does this matter? Consequence. Consequences we have to pay. Yeah. yeah. We have to remember that yeah. God is the one we need to follow. Yeah. And the only reason to know that is to be really friends with his son. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I wish I want you to spend time with Randy because as as I have come to know Randy and his heart, what he just spoke is what he's living out. To the best of his ability, he's trying to do that. And Randy gets faith. I think he gets faith. Uh, Randy Watts, this is important. Remember, we keep stating this.
to be a follower of Jesus is to repeat his words, replicate his actions, right? I mean, you can't slice it up any other way. And when you look through John's gospel, John 5 and John 12, that's exactly what he did. He said, hey, I'm just saying what dad taught me to say, and I'm just doing what I see my dad do. So if you get upset with me, you're going to have to take it to him. That's Jesus, right? Okay, you see me, you see the father. It's that simple. So he's not, he, he doesn't get threatened by his critics. Okay, but watch this. Randy, when he was getting tempted, and by the way, he hadn't had eaten, hadn't eaten in what, 40 days? Do you think one of those soft stones... In that baked hot desert, do you think one of those stones looked like a piece of bread, a loaf of bread? I bet it did. And can you imagine, look at that, that bread and just imagining that that, you know, it's like from Panera Bread Company or something. It's, oh, that'd be so good to have that with some butter. And, and Satan says, hey, make it become bread. And what did Jesus do? He, Don't live by bread alone. he quoted scripture. So he was repeating the words of his father. Where did he get that statement? Well, he memorized it from the book of Deuteronomy. Does it make sense? So we get his words in our heart, and when temptation hits Michael, you quote scripture instead of coming up with a justification on how you can get away with it. Big difference, right? Looking for a loophole, looking for a justification, finding an excuse. Because if you're like me, I can think myself logically into the wrong conclusion pretty quickly. Right? I, I have that capacity. But when I quote scripture, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. So again, he is quoting scripture with every temptation. He quotes scripture. He repeats the words of his father. You know, the core of that, though, is the very last part. His heart motives. Because we can repeat his word, and we can replicate his actions, and all it really is is his words. Yeah. You know, some, yeah. of, the, some of the most brilliant Bible scholars I've ever known Right. They just yeah. knew his word, and so it really, it really becomes the heart motive and of of understanding that right. his words are true. Yes, they are absolute truth that we find life in living by, mm. and that in in replicating his actions, there's just more life because even if we suffer for that, there's there's Yes. But this whole crisis thing, I was just looking at that and I was thinking, because it's something that, you know, most of my life I, I struggled with where my esteem was. <clears throat> but when we understand Christ's esteem and what God says about us, who he says we, we are, how he values us, that is the one unchanging value system. Yes. When we look Your spouse esteem is dangerous business, isn't it? Yeah, or, or <laughs> any kind of people esteem, yep. because one yep. day they expect this, and next day they expect that. Yep. And, we, and we can't. Yep. We can't ever earn what we're looking for in that, where with Christ's esteem, we didn't even have to earn it. It was just poured out on us. Yes, grace lavished upon us. Yes, yes, yes. So if I have, if I have here's a funny story. My wife, Lisa, if you know Lisa, uh, Christian, she is nonverbal. She just does not say much, right? So we're going home from church. And I'm like, Lisa, what did you think of the teaching? That's pretty good, huh? But yeah. She's my wife, right? I can do that with her. And she goes, um, uh, 
that, what, what did you talk about? <laughs> well, my, my esteem's just shredded. Honey, it was about Christ's esteem. Remember all the cool Greek words I brought up? Don't you remember that? What's this good? Good? What is good? What, is, what does that mean? It was good, you know? Now, if I go to Rebecca, oh, daddy, it was the most wonderful teaching ever, you know? Like, oh, thanks, Rebecca. I love you too, sweetheart. Yes, I do. <laughs> Boy, you have child esteem, or wife esteem, or spouse esteem. You're, you're all over the map, right? You're wise, yeah. Uh, true confession, I did not have any Cheetos this week. I just want you to know that. So working through my Cheeto addiction, so feel guilty. So punishment for the Patriots losing, so no Cheetos for me. So <laughs> love you guys so much. You've answered so well. In all fairness, we've got a lot of living to do this week, don't we? Like really live, like come to life, be alive. There's life in being about the, the business of our Father. So, okay, I want to pray. Abba Father, thank you. Thank you for each person that's here. Thank you for what Edie said and Randy and Michelle. Um, Lord, it's time to set our hand to the plow. Time to not look back anymore. We realize that the way really is narrow. And we can't talk our way into anything. Teach us. Thank you that by grace you have mercy on us. And you are a high priest and we can come running and jump up in your lap. And find mercy and comfort in our time of need. Thank you for the way you love us so faithfully. I ask that each person here make the life-changing decision to commit themselves to be about your business, please. In Jesus' name, amen.